Good morning. It's day uh, 81. I'm starting to wonder like how many days I'm gonna go for this particular series, probably to a thousand, I don't know, we'll see. Um, so I titled today's um, conversation on revival about um, why generation question mark doesn't um, believe. I hear a lot, um, you know, I've been teaching Bible Lit in a public school for, I think this is my 10th year. And, you know, the combination of students that take that class is always very interesting. You know, you have a lot of people who are seekers and, and just have questions. Some of them are in it just because their schedule didn't work any other way. And they either opt to stay in or not. And um, others take it because they've been in church their whole life as, you know, in youth group. And they think that, well, I should probably be in this class, you know, et cetera. And there has been a consensus that has been building over the last 10 years that I think has become more poignant recently as I've listened, you know, and I think that's been a key, um, is actually listening to what kids are saying without having the right answer. Like, for example, yesterday I got the question, um, cause I, generally make a list of students questions and you know that on their journals and then I just we pick those questions to go out for a discussion and so usually the questions get pretty um, racy and fun in some ways because people the students really do want to know about what God thinks about certain things and they're very uncertain but yesterday I got the question about well, what about the people who live in a country where they've never heard the message and they've never had an opportunity to, you know, receive Jesus? Do all those people go to hell? And, I, and for most of the students in the room, it was interesting. They've already been given the answer to that. And I'm thinking, you know, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I, I don't claim to be anything. I, I don't, you know, I'm not like most profoundly Bible-lit scholar, you know, theologian guy. I'm, I'm just pretty simple and live and love Jesus and walk with him. And so my answer to them at first, I think was a little bit stunning because I said, you know what? I don't know the answer to that question directly. I, I and I'm never going to pretend that I know, and I think a big mistake we've made in the generation is particularly in Christendom, is we want them to have an answer. We wanna be able to give them an answer to every question because we wanna shape what they believe. And you know, so the goal is that the Bible brings revelation and truth that will shape my behavior and keep me from having sex and doing drugs and doing all these other things and they recognize that there is a pharisaical house that has been built and has been the institution of the land, um, you know, basically fueled by the devil who loves religion and legalism. And that's what they've been a part, a part of. And many haven't had an encounter like, you know, um, with God at all. And so in answering that question, I'll just tell you what I said, you know, sort of, I said, here's what I know. I'll tell you the thing I do know just from my own experience. Hold on, I think if I stand with the lights, come on.
Oh, they did a few minutes ago. I guess not. All right, so I, <laughs> we'll just do this in the dark. Um, there's no darkness. Jesus doesn't penetrate. I said, you know, let me go by the things that I do know. I said, I know that Jesus is extremely merciful. I said, I know that Jesus, after he resurrected, went into hell and preached the gospel. And I said, and what I've watched in life is Jesus chasing people down, that God's love is radical and that he chases people down. And I said, I think a lot of people have met Jesus in the air. And, you know, and I related some experiences, you know, being one was when my father-in-law died suddenly and um, I was the first one to go into the room in the hospital emergency room to where he was. And, you know, to, and I first want to see him dead. And my mother-in-law wanted me to get the wedding ring because she wanted to immediately put it on her finger. It was something that would just make her feel secure. And I said, I'll go. And when I walked in the room, it was the closest thing to audible that I've ever heard. And he was a pastor and he just, he was, he was chuckling and he was laughing and he said, I'm okay. And he was just like laughing, like almost giddy. And later when my wife went in there, of course, much more traumatic to see her father in that state, but she had the same experience. And so, um, so I said, you know, I'm explaining that. I said, look, I don't have a theology that says how we ascend to heaven. At what point do we leave our, you know, we, I know we leave our body. I told him that the body is empty, right? I know that we do. And why would my father-in-law be worried about me when he is the one that just passed away? It just was always a very strange thing. And so um, he was letting me know that he was transitioning and it was good. And then later, I just told another story. I said, well, when my mother-in-law passed, the whole family was there. And my mother-in-law was a product of a generation um, in that where she was very cut off from her heart. Um, she found it challenging to receive love because she never, to, she never received it as a child. And so there was like an encasement around her heart. And, you know, literally she had a hard time receiving and then therefore had a hard time giving it away. So it always just made her life very, um, I don't want to say empty, but just not vibrant in terms of having Jesus in her heart and knowing and feeling secure. And we recognized this when she was terrified of dying, when she was in the process and she was in hospice. And my wife and I both had this conversation at different times with her and she she looked at me and she was angry and she said, well, what would you do if you were in my spot? Because she was in a you know, stage of denial. And I said, um, mom, if I had got to the point where my body wasn't working anymore and it was shutting down on me, I think I'd make my peace. And I'd be wondering about where I'm going because heaven and hell is a big issue for students. And so, you know, in that scenario, the thing that was beautiful and the way that my mother-in-law went out in victory, you know, never having been able to fully receive or give love in the way that she probably would have wanted to, was the whole family was there and she was transitioning into heaven right in front of us. And as my wife was holding her hand and as each person would come into the room, she would 
tell mom who was there and she would rouse up out of this place that she was and she would say the thing that she wanted to say. It was like her legacy. I love you, I'm so proud of you. And she did that with everyone. And in fact, one point, I knew that there was peace because she said, oh, I think this is my farewell party. And then she would go into heaven. She'd have a place where she would ascend and, and she would say things like, she said, Jane, it's so beautiful. The colors are so vibrant. And then she said, I've never felt so loved in my entire life. And all of her grandkids and children heard a woman who had had a hard time ever feeling and holding love say that she'd never felt more loved. And she gave us a picture of heaven. She was transitioning. And when she, when she breathed her last breath, one of the granddaughters said, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And it was beautiful because it bridged this huge gap that all of us have when we have this fear of death and you see a body and you see the person die. But when you see heaven in the midst of it and, she, and she's telling you her legacy is to tell her grandkids and kids about heaven, it changes everything. And so I, I told students, I said, I don't have the answer because their question was, you know, people in a country that never received Jesus. I said, but here's what else I know. I said that Romans 1, and here's why we talked about Romans 1 before we went into um, Genesis, kind of lays out what, what went wrong. And it lays out that men are without an excuse from the standpoint that if they look into the creation, they're going to have to ask the question, who made me? Who made this and where did I come from? That every creation story in the globe and every religion tries to answer that, but Christianity is the only one where we're made in his image. And so, and we're made to live in his presence. And so I told that story and about how, you know, um, essentially, um, I just lost one thought. All right, I'm gonna jump to what my next one was. And then I also said, because remember, their big question was, what happens to people that never heard about Jesus? And I was talking about Jesus's relentless pursuit. Then I talked about the testimony of Dr. Chauncey Crandall, a heart surgeon, very famous man, who his testimony is online, and so is the man that came. Because they're, they're trying to figure out about the hell piece, okay? And why would God let a whole nation go to hell? And I, in his story, he died of a heart attack and he had been cleaned up and you could watch this one on YouTube. They had already prepped him for the morgue and as the doctor, 40 minutes later, I mean, he's like dead, dead. Here's the Holy Spirit speak, go back and tell that man to come back to life. And first time hearing that, first time raising the dead, you know, that'd be a little disconcerting. And as a doctor it was, and so he said, okay. He kept hearing it, he went back to the room and there was another doctor still there and of course his only model for resurrection was to put the paddles on the chest again and see what would happen and essentially he said i want you to shock him again and you know a little bit strange request probably not the thing that would be written up as the you know best practices and ethics but when holy spirit was speaking it and because he was friends with the doctor he did and that man just came back to life right in front of him. His journey back was a little challenging, but he shared 
a glimpse of what hell was like for him because he had descended into a place that was so painfully empty where no children, it was dark, no God, no children, nothing. This extreme, yeah, this extreme painful isolation. And so I, I don't know how far he went, but obviously, but then he saw a white light. He saw light and a figure walked in. And so that became part of the answer that I gave to the students. I said, here was a man who died the doctor brought him back to life because Jesus told him to. He was descending into hell. And the part that he described, I can't describe all of it, but the part he described was this painful alienation from everything and being dark. And when the white light came into the room or came into the vision and basically told him, you're going to be okay, he knew in that context and later that he had met Jesus. And I said, so... I think Jesus, because he's merciful, I think that's an example of how he chases us down to the very last minute and that his desire is that none should perish. And then so, you know, that's one main question. But there are some themes and I laid out yesterday. I said, I want I want to thank you guys because you've been really honest. And I said, here's some core themes in the generation. Some of the themes are because they've already seen their families broken up and the, the whole fracture of the family, they've seen a lot of things that have happened that have wrong, that are just wrong. And their experience in church, because basically they would say things like, all right, so mom is an atheist and maybe so-and-so believes in Jesus and I go to church, and that, but I don't see any proof because they kept looking at the Bible and they were like, it isn't relevant to me. But for many of them, because they were churched, there is hope in this because there is a seed that's implanted in them that God is gonna you know, cash a check and call them in. But here's where they're living. I don't see any proof. I hear, I hear, I hear. And the overwhelming thing is that I've been told my whole life what I'm supposed to believe about everything. And so they don't even know where to go in the Bible. You know, they're asking questions like, um, if I'm a see it to believe it person, how is the Bible relevant? Does God answer prayers of people that don't believe him? And did the Bible leave out miracles? Because I don't see as many in there. I mean, obviously they haven't read. And then why does God give us a choice to follow him instead of just forcing us? <laughs> and then... If the Bible's the word of God, why do people pick and choose what to believe? So they recognize the generation picks and choose. And the overarching, uh, there are several themes. One is that God is distant and that a lot of bad things have happened. And so they look at a world that is in disarray and chaos and they've watched their families in many places fall apart. And they've watched the hypocrisy of a religious system you know, built by the enemy called religion. And the motivation for religion is always fear and law. And that's all they've ever known is fear of misbehaving. And so there's great shame and guilt when they struggle the same as their non-Christian friends do. They don't see a difference. And I always find it refreshing when there's a non-believer or a seeker in the room because they ask the most honest questions. You know, that 
this one person described themselves as, I guess I'm kind of agnostic, you know, like logic and reason versus God. And I've never really seen God in anything, so I, I'm not sure. And I took this class because, and this was a very common theme. I took the class because I thought, I just want to find out maybe if it's true. And see, in the context of the class, I could always tell the truth. And if a student asked to share from a faith-based perspective, which often they do, I can say that. And even if I have to talk about it in terms of literary terms, metaphor, allegory, it still works. But, I, but the overarching themes, like I said, are that they don't see any power in the church. They don't see anything that touches them. And I ask them a question, because a lot of the journal questions kind of probe, you know, like, when have you ever had an encounter with God? And some of the journal things I heard, I wrote one, good morning, thank you, that said, kind of like, well, when we went to church camp, we got real high. And then we got real low. And they talk about this cycle of high and low. And they're describing a religious system that pumps you up. And I'm not saying that they have not had any encounter in there. I'm not saying that parents are bad parents who have churched kids. I'm saying that we're extremely naive if you think that your churched kids are not struggling because they know how to look good and they've learned how to look good on the outside. They are, and they're struggling with the same thing that everybody else says. And I said, that's always brought me to two questions or more. One, what kind of things are they struggling with? Because whatever it is, it's so huge that it's very, 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 very powerful. And the other is, how did they get free? How do we free a generation that is stuck? And so I think it gets a little strange for people to say that probably most of the church is in bondage to cycles of sin and addiction and life patterns that they can't get out of and cycles and, and Jesus and this revival that's covering the earth. One of the things he's going to do is break the cycles and hit the reset button because we need the hugest reset that we've ever had. And glory is a reset of the planet. So when glory comes, it's the big reset. And I like the way my buddy Jamie says this. He said, revival isn't like isolated just to a baptismal or just to this or that or fire hubs around the country. Revival changes everything. It's not like we have fire hubs in different parts of the world and the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket. No. God is always working. He's always the guy that is the guy that the God is, who is working behind the scenes, always orchestrating. And every suddenly and every transition and every place that we're going and crossing over into this new threshold into the third great awakening in every one of those places, there's a huge backstory. And some backstories are longer than others because of what he's preparing you for. And I love what Nate said. I said it yesterday. The heartscape has been the, literally the foundational core of the revival that we've seen in Dawsonville, Remnant, everywhere Todd goes, different parts of the world already. The heartscape is changing so that we can embrace the landscape. How do you take religion that has been pounded into people, including us, for years 
and bring us back into this place of childlike faith and awe and wonder. See, and then I told stories because, because you know, again, their big question is why would God send a bunch of people who don't know about hell? And I said, well, let me, let me give you another story. I said, in Haiti, third world country, people have a grid for supernatural. I said, it's kind of strange that Christian families here, when they want their kids to experience supernatural, they send them on youth power invasion. They send them on anything that goes to Brazil or anywhere on the world. They send them to third world. And I said, because here's the big difference. I said, third world, if you don't, if Jesus doesn't show up, you're done. And I, I told stories about how I had a real struggle, you know, as I drove from Port-au-Prince to Ghana Eves, I had a, I was in the back of a truck and a tear just ran down my eye and I had never taken in so much deprivation and so much lack in my life. And my big struggle at that juncture was God's grace. I said, Lord, I don't know how this happens. And then one day we were feeding, we'd feed about a hundred kids a day. 70 or so, we usually had to walk away and not every one of them had eaten that day and might not be back until later in the week. And it was because it's all the food that we had. I'm sitting on the ground with these two little guys um, and they offer me a bite of food off their plate. And I about just lose it. And I'm thinking, if you out of your lack and out of your place of nothing can offer me something from your plate, then the grace of God is large. And I talked about a scenario where, you know, some Haitians came to us and they want us to go minister to, you know, someone that was, you know, basically, you know, dying and whatnot. So we had to get in a truck and we go over there. We had a small team. And just prior to that, when we were feeding kids, I said, here's what happens. When you're in a situation where there is a lot of desperation and hunger, you life gets really simple and you go back to the basics of what you read in the gospel. There was a kid that was along the wall that looked like he was dead. He wouldn't move. I couldn't even tell if he was breathing and um, he wasn't eating, of course. And so I was desperate and I said, I did the thing, the only, only thing I knew. I went over and put my hand on him. I told the students, I said, I just said in the name of Jesus, come back. 20 minutes later, he was eating. In the meantime, we had been directed to go to this other person's place, you know, somebody that was suffering. And we walked into this person's home and home is a very loose construct in uh, third world. The mother is prostrate on the floor, face down praying. And through the interpreter, we find out that's where she stays, praying, interceding for her son day and night. Her son, his arms and legs are as skinny as rails, and he's not been out of this home, this shelter, except they get him out to go to the bathroom and he gets back in. So for three months, he's been there. He doesn't walk. And when our team put our hands on his body, the fever was so hot, his clothes were burning. And then I told them, and I said, when I looked at him, I knew he wasn't with us. There was something demonic. I said, 
you know, these are students who are saying, I don't, we don't have any proof that the Bible is real. So, but in third world, and, and when do we hear about demonic? You know what I mean? A third of Jesus ministry. I said, so I did the thing that was simple. I went back to the three things that Jesus did. He raised the dead, cast out devils, and healed the sick. And so I, we said, in the name of Jesus, whatever's tormenting this man, get out. And I was, taught, I was telling this story yesterday, and suddenly he came into focus. And I'm like, okay, we got the, we got the man. <laughs> and so um, once we knew he was present with us, then we commanded the fever to leave. I mean, students' eyes are like this big, you know. And I said, immediately his body was cool, it was. And I said, you know, you, you, you all remember the story where the guy, the people led, that put the guy down through the thatched roof and they said, Jesus said, seeing their faith, anybody heard that story? I said, I know faith is part of this equation, but I think it's Jesus's faith most of the time. I, I, I don't know whose it is when it shows up, but, it, but it's in the equation. And, you know, I think the thing, like I said, that was very disarming is I'm, I'm very honest when I don't know the answer to everything. And so I go on to tell the story that through the interpreter, I see that faith is rising, fever gone, demon gone. I said, tell mama we're taking him for a walk. And we got him up, walked him all the way down the lane. He'd been there for three months in that bed like that with fever and demonic oppression and walked him back to the mama who was face down on the ground hours a day praying for her son and presented her son to him whole. So I said, that's the difference. In third world, where the need and the desperation is huge, we believe, they believe in Jesus easy. In first world, where we can fill ourselves with everything under the sun, and we go to, we have so many things done for us and our lives are so filled with everything. We don't ever have a need in many ways. I said, we don't ever have that kind of desperation and hunger. And I said, so we don't ever go there. And so the correlation for them was, because again, the major overriding theme of this particular question was, why would God send a group of people to hell that I've never heard? And I was trying just to say simply this. Part of your problem is you haven't experienced supernatural. And because you haven't, you don't have a grid for his power. So what you've seen is you've seen a lot of preaching and you've had a lot of listening and a lot of behavior modification, but you've not seen the power of God. And I said, where people have a need, when they're really hungry, they do. And so I left it at that. I, I can't say much else. I said in a, in a country where people have never heard the message, I, I think a lot of people get met in the air. I think I didn't tell them that about the testimonies of Jesus walking into villages. I wasn't sure we could go there quite yet. But nonetheless, and so I'll probably talk for several days about the generation because I see prevailing themes emerge. And the primary theme is a gospel that has no power. They've had truth spoken to them over and over and over again and been told what to believe. And everybody they talk to has an answer to give them. Instead of saying, I don't know, let's just look at it together. Let's find it out.
But when we talk about supernatural, the eyes open and it's like, whoa. And they've built a world around supernatural. Everything they read, everything they watch. The generation has the DNA to be the biggest generation of lovers who walk in the most unprecedented power as manifest sons and daughters of God than any previous generation for a lot of reasons that we've been talking about. So even though I see what looks like radical unbelief, I see, oh, the least of these. And Jesus just so loves the least of these, and he loves to confound the rest of the world. And he's going to raise up this generation that's not going to be religious. <laughs> They're just not going to be religious. They're going to actually do and say things. They're going to come outside the walls of the church, and they're going to do life ministry power, and they're going to walk in glory like no other generation previous, and they won't have the religious grid. That's the reset button in this revival, the, re the religious grid goes away and we come back to the simplicity of the gospel. Do you trust me? And will you walk and live moment by moment with me an unscripted life? This generation is prepared for that. I don't care what you're seeing and what I've seen for almost 20 years. I look at one thing but that's not what Jesus is looking at. And there are suddenlies coming for them. And in the darkest places of their life, in the greatest places of unbelief, he is going to redeem and make it the greatest place of strength. Thank you, guys. Love you. Love to hear your comments, share it, all those things. See you tomorrow.